True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The woman feels a sudden jolt of pain in her back. At first, she's unsure what it is, but soon the jolts rain down on her, and just before she loses consciousness, she turns and looks into the eyes she knows so well. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 98, The Murder of Kurs and Anna Volmerans. This episode is sponsored by the new release biographical crime movie, Bandit. In 1985, Gilbert Galvin Jr., played by Josh Duhamel, a charming career criminal, escapes from a U.S. prison in Michigan and crosses the border into Canada, where he assumes the identity Robert Whiteman. After falling in love with Andrea, played by Alicia Cuthbert, he turns to robbing banks and discovers he's quite good at it. Pretending to be a security analyst, Robert begins flying around the country, robbing multiple cities in a day, eventually catching the attention of national news outlets that dub him the Flying Bandit. Robert becomes addicted to the rush and money, and soon turns to loan shark and gangster Tommy Kay, played by Mel Gibson, to hook him up with bigger opportunities. But Robert's notoriety is growing, and a ruthless detective played by Nesta Carbonell will stop at nothing to bring him down. The movie is based on the 1996 true crime book The Flying Bandits by Robert Knuckle, and I don't think I have to tell you that, true crime fans, this is definitely for you. The movie releases nationwide in cinemas on the 25th of November, and I've got two double tickets to give away. Check out our social media for details on how to enter. A huge thank you to Bandit for sponsoring True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon and PayPal supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Helena, Matthew Stretch, Varushka Fandamava, Althea Muniz, Melissa Blow, Carla Stradorm, Murray Pinar, and Lele Malau for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Patreons get an exclusive episode every month, as well as access to ad-free versions of each week's episode. There are currently 22 Patreon-exclusive episodes on the platform, so if you're keen to access those, head on over to Patreon and search True Crime South Africa, or click the link in the show notes. You also have the option of purchasing an annual subscription, which I think is a pretty good idea as a Christmas gift for your best true crime friend or partner in crime. Today's episode covers a murder within a family, but what makes it quite different from some of the others we've looked at on this podcast is that the offender involved outsiders in the crime. Another aspect that some would wonder about was the fact that the offender in this case was not related to the victims by blood, and we'll explore the trauma that can come from adoption in this episode too. 
My sources for this case include an episode of Autopsy, as well as several media articles about this case. So let's get into episode 98, the murder of Kurs and Anna Volmerantz. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Jakobus Wolmerantz was born on the 8th of August 1944 in Krugersdorp. In his early 20s, he met and married Anna Engelbrecht, and the couple moved to Westville in what was then known as the Natal province. There, the couple started several businesses together, and it soon became clear that Jakobus, who was known as Kurs, was an excellent businessman with a keen eye for a deal. He and Anna were happily married and building successful businesses together, but the one thing they really wanted to do, which was start a family, was proving to be a challenge more insurmountable than they'd ever faced. Eventually, the couple would be forced to accept that the future for their family looked a little different than they'd thought. They could not conceive their own biological children, so they would adopt. In the early 1980s, the Volmerans couple adopted on two occasions, a baby boy, whom they named Frederick, and a baby girl, they named Estelle. Frederick, or Fritz as he would become known, because there were quite a few Fredericks in the Volmerans family, with it being Kurs's father's name, was just two weeks old when Anna and Kurs became his parents. Fritz's sister would later say that in her experience, she and her brother had had a pretty idyllic childhood. She felt that they never wanted for anything. And I say the words, in her experience, very specifically, because Fritz would say that he'd had a very different experience of his childhood and his parents' parenting style. And this is entirely possible. It doesn't mean his parents even parented him any differently than they did his sister, although it's possible they did. It just means that he was viewing the world through a different lens, and the one he saw his family through didn't paint them as the happy family his sister saw. By the time he matriculated, it became clear to Fritz's parents that their son was going to need a significant amount of guidance to get on the track they'd hoped he would be on. Fritz had fallen in with quite a rough crowd. He'd even earned himself a rather interesting nickname. His friends didn't know him as Fritz or even Frederick. They knew him as Snakes. Kurs had wanted his son to go on to study after school, but it would take some time to get Fritz to agree to a specific study track. He eventually decided on a business-related diploma, likely after some strong suggestion from his dad. But Fritz wasn't just struggling to find his educational path in life. He was also trying to navigate a habit he'd developed with his group of friends. Fritz, or Snakes as he was known, had developed a drug habit. When his parents had discovered that their son was dabbling at some level in drugs, they reacted in the same way many do. At first they were sure that getting him professional help, rehab, would be the solution, 
but they would soon learn that in the world of addiction, it's not always that easy. It's unclear just how deep Fritz's drug habit had run, but it would later be said that his parents had eventually resorted to the tough love that many parents of addicts have no choice but to resort to after all other options are exhausted. Fritz still lived with his parents, even by age 20, despite his recurring drug habit, but his parents soon started refusing to supply him with any additional money over and above what was required for necessities. He was fed, clothed, his education was paid for, and he had a roof over his head. But his parents didn't feel they could trust him with any additional money at that point, because they were pretty sure it would encourage his drug habits. The tough love idea is one that many addiction experts promote. It's usually a last resort, and it's often harder for the family or loved ones of the addict than it actually is for the person with the substance use issue. Some people respond well to this. It makes them realize they've hit rock bottom. But for as many people, it doesn't work. It either makes them more desperate and likely to get themselves into even worse trouble to meet their substance needs, or, for a small number of people, it activates something underlying. It makes them feel rejected, and like victims. They cannot see how their loved ones have already given them everything, emotionally and often financially, that they can, and instead... They're certain that their family is simply being selfish, and they become angry, very angry. Frederick Fritz Volmerantz seems to have reacted in exactly this way. Just after 11pm on the evening of the 27th of March 2000, a phone call from the Volmerantz residence came in to Westville Police Station. Fritz Wolmerans demanded the immediate presence of police at his home. He said he'd just come home from the pavilion shopping centre after meeting with a friend and found that his house had been broken into and both his parents had been attacked. The police officer said they'd be sending an ambulance and a police unit would follow. Frederick said his parents were very clearly dead. He didn't think an ambulance would be necessary. In the episode of the television program Autopsy, forensic pathologist Dr. Hestel van Staden speaks about this case from first-hand experience, at least from the perspective of having known the family when she was growing up. The Vormerans family were family friends to Hestel's family, and she remembers thinking how their home would never get broken into because they always had big, fierce-looking dogs as pets. When police arrived at the Vormerans' residence that night, they found that their two Rottweilers were locked in the garage. Frederick said that the dogs had been in there when he'd arrived home. Police came across 55-year-old Jakobus Kurs Vormerans first. He was in the lounge. It appeared he'd been attacked while watching television. The man had clearly put up a huge fight for his life. He was bruised and battered and had sustained at least 32 stab wounds before succumbing to a combination of this physical trauma. 
Kosa's wife, Anna, lay in the hallway. She seemed to have put up less of a fight than her husband. Perhaps she was ambushed, but her wounds were just as horrific. She too had many stab wounds, and her throat had been savagely slit. Unlike her husband, who pathologists estimated may have been alive for as long as an hour after he'd fallen to the floor, immobile, Anna Vormerans had died almost immediately. Dr. Stalfenstaden explains the various ways that the slitting of a throat can result in death. One way is when a slow bleed vein is cut and the victim is otherwise immobilized and doesn't receive medical attention immediately and the victim may slowly bleed to death. Another way is when the arteries that transport blood from the heart to the brain are severed. This results in high-pressure blood being released and you'll see a spurting action from the injury and this can cause the victim to bleed out very quickly. The third way that a blade injury to the neck can kill someone is by creating an embolism, an air bubble, that enters the vein system and travels to parts of the body where it shouldn't be, like the heart or the lungs, and that is how the victim ultimately dies. Anna Vulmerans died as a result of the stab wounds and the slitting of her throat, but she also had a heart condition and Hestelfenstaden points out an interesting legal situation which is applicable in murders where the victim had an underlying health condition that could have contributed to their death. The legal principle is called talum qualum, or it's sometimes referred to as the thin skull rule, and the general idea behind it is that, quote, the wrongdoer takes his victim as he finds him, end quote. Essentially, what this legal rule does is prevent an offender from claiming that it was an underlying health condition that had killed their victim and not their actions. For instance, if an offender assaults a victim in a manner which can be proven to be deliberate and could knowingly lead to death, whether that victim ends up dying as a result of the attack or of a heart attack, for instance, does not matter to a court. The offender cannot say, I was not aware of their underlying heart condition and therefore I cannot be held responsible for a heart attack that resulted from my assault of that person. In Anna's case, there was no direct evidence at autopsy that her heart condition had indeed contributed to her death, but it may well have to some extent. That, though, would be of no consequence when they found her killer because of the talum qualum principle. Once the gravity of the scene had been ascertained by the initial responding officers, the Pinetown Murder and Robbery Unit was contacted to attend the scene. Detective Werner Havnicher was attached to this unit, which at the time specialized in handling only murders and violent robberies. These units would later be dismantled by SAPS management, and those detectives would be reintegrated back to station level. This move would mean that all detectives, whether or not they were qualified or trained to do so, had to handle dockets of all kinds, from muggings right up to complex murders, like that of the Vormerans family. This was 
undoubtedly not a smart move from the SAPS. And we've seen the fallout from this poor decision in the 22 years that followed. On that night, though, the Vormorans couple would have the services of a highly trained and focused detective on their case. And the results soon began to show. When Havenkar walked through the scene, he immediately felt that the couple must have known their attacker or attackers. They had been going on about the ordinary routine of their evening when they were killed. Their dogs, who other friends and family members would later say were always in the house, had been inexplicably locked in the garage. This could not have been done by someone who didn't know the dogs, as they simply would not have obeyed a stranger's commands. It was when Havenkar went into Fritz Vollmerans' bedroom, though, that he found some significant evidence that something truly strange was at play. Fritz had told police when they arrived that the attackers seemed to have gained access through his bedroom, but when Havenkar went into the room, although the glass on the window was broken and the burglar bars were bent, seemingly to allow access to intruders, this damage had quite clearly been caused from the inside. The shattered glass lay on the ground outside the house. None of it was inside, which you'd expect to see if someone had stood outside and smashed the window. The way the burglar bar was bent was also clearly done from the inside of the house. Havenkar immediately suspected that someone living in the house was responsible for the crime. There were several items missing from the home. Anna Volmerantz's wedding ring had been removed from her finger, and there were other clearly open spaces on shelves and tables around the house where high-value items had been removed. While forensics officers gathered evidence from the scene, Detective Havenkar asked Fritz Volmerantz to come down to the station with him. During his initial statements, Fritz stuck to his story that he'd been at the pavilion that night and had returned home to find his parents dead. The alibi was weak, though. Havenkar believed, and the estimated time of death of the victims indicated, that Fritz would have had plenty of time left to commit the crime. Elmarie Myberg of the SAPS's Investigative Psychology Unit says that the nature of the attacks on the couple also pointed to someone who knew them having committed the crimes. The huge number of stab wounds and the frenzy of both attacks indicated that whoever had killed the couple had harboured the type of anger toward them that would usually only be born of a personal connection. As the brutal slayings hit the headlines, the news also hit the streets. And it wasn't long before the intricate network of informants the murder and robbery units had set up provided invaluable information to detectives. An anonymous caller told Detective Havenkar that in the last few months, a young man known on the streets as Snakes had been trying to find people willing to commit murder. The young man had approached several different sex workers he'd had dealings with in the past, some had turned him down, others had made tentative inquiries on his behalf, but nothing, it seemed, had panned out. Until, 
he approached a 27-year-old woman who worked in the sex trade under the name Priscilla. Priscilla was soon identified as Lily Mandob. The woman lived in an area called Verulam and was a known sex worker. Havnikar made contact with the woman and asked her to come down to the police station. Initially, she denied any involvement in the crime, but police were certain enough that they decided to hold her in custody overnight. The next day, Lily was brought back from the holding cells and questioned again. This time, she said she could no longer live with the nightmares she was experiencing and was ready to talk. Lily Mandob admitted that Frederick Fritz Vulmerantz had approached her to help him kill his parents. She would later provide a full confession to a magistrate, which detailed what she said happened on that night. As she gave this statement, Havenkar was simultaneously actioning the arrest of Fritz Vulmerantz. Fritz's sister, who was married and lived in the UK with her husband, was informed that her brother had been arrested in connection with her parents' murder. She was already making arrangements to travel back to South Africa, and now she realized she would not be comforting her brother, but rather navigating a whole new level of horror. Lily's statements also provided the names of three other individuals who, she said, had been involved in the murders. The woman said that when Fritz had approached her, she'd in turn arranged for her nephews, 23-year-old Ronald and 19-year-old Brian, to assist in the crime. She had eventually also involved her boyfriend, 27-year-old Eric Kansaka. All three men were promptly located and arrested, and with all five alleged perpetrators now in custody, police set about sifting through their various versions to find the truth. Fritz Vollmerans would admit that he'd been involved in the murder of his parents. He claimed, though, that he'd suffered years of emotional abuse from his father, and on the day of the murders, his father had told him that he needed to pack his belongings and leave the house. He was throwing him out on the street. Fritz claimed that he'd snapped. He said that he knew then that his only way out of the abusive web his father had cast over him was to kill the man. He'd approached Lily Mandorb because he was afraid to commit the murders himself, and things had moved so fast that he couldn't stop the wheel once it was in motion. Fritz admitted that he told Lily and her accomplices that they could take whatever they wanted from the home after they'd killed his parents, and that would be their payment. When police had arrested the other four, they did indeed find items belonging to the victims in their homes. Lily Mandor had Anna Volmerance's wedding ring. Fritz told Havenkar that he'd met Lily and the others at his house and shown them how to gain access. He'd then gone to the pavilion so that he could have an alibi. When he returned to the house, his parents were already dead, he said, and he helped the perpetrators to load the items into the vehicle and drove them to their homes. He was brought back home by Ronald Mandob, and it was at that time that he'd reported his parents' murders to police. His motive, he claimed, 
was never financial. He'd felt completely helpless, and after years of emotional abuse from his father, he'd seen no other way out of his situation than the murders. Lily Mandorb said that she'd been present during the murders, but she hadn't actually stabbed either victim. This, she said, was done by her nephews and her boyfriend. The three men, though, would deny having been present when the Vormorant's couple were killed. Brian and Ronald said that they were called to the property by Lily, and when they arrived, found her and Fritz there. They said that they were told by their aunt that they were to help with removing some items from the house. They climbed through a bedroom window that Fritz had shown them, and only when they were inside did they realize that this was much worse than a house robbery. Ronald said when he saw the body of course Vormerans, he'd frozen and demanded that Lily tell him what was going on. She told him not to ask questions and just do what he was told. He and Brian admitted that they had participated in removing items from the home but denied any involvement in the actual murders. Eric Kansaka, Lily's boyfriend, told a similar story to the Mandor brothers. He said Lily had called him and asked him to come and help her at a house in Westville. Lily had told him that Fritz Vormerans was her employer and that he was giving her several items from his home. She needed his help transporting and carrying the items. Eric said he'd thought it was strange that her employer would be doing this so late at night, but he'd gone to the address she'd given him. When he arrived there, though, he realized that everything was not as it seemed. He says he was told to enter the house through a window because the owner of the house had lost his keys. This seems strange enough, but when he got inside, he saw the bodies, and Eric claimed he was horrified and demanded to know from Lily what had happened. As she'd allegedly done with her nephews, Eric says his girlfriend told him not to ask any questions. With all these different versions about who the actual perpetrators may have been, it would be difficult for police to really prove who had stabbed the victims. But really, they didn't need to. The defendant's own testimony placed them at the home, and there was physical evidence that did that too. Police had found cigarette butts in the garden of the Vormorant's home. Neither Kurs nor Anna smoked, and there were various brands of cigarettes so the evidence had been collected. These would be fingerprinted, and the fingerprints would match back to Ronald, Brian, and Eric. These men, who claimed to have been wholly shocked at the horrifying scene they'd found at the house, had still taken the time to have quite a few cigarettes during their time there. While it would be difficult to know exactly who had physically killed the Vormorans couple, a few aspects of the murders would point police in the right direction. The couple had clearly been ambushed in their home, and this spoke to Fritz having been present when the murders were committed. He could have broken his bedroom window and bent the bars and brought his accomplices into his room and then left the house and let them continue with the murders, but the dogs were in the garage. The dogs were never in the garage and Kurs and Anna would have wanted to know why they were in there, and perhaps they may have even let them out, 
if Fritz had just let the perpetrators in and left the house. Another aspect of the conflicting statements that had to be considered was that Kurs had clearly been involved in a protracted fight with his attacker prior to his death. He'd suffered blunt force trauma as well as knife wounds. This, at the very least, spoke to the possibility of more than one perpetrator having attacked him at the same time, and it's also unlikely that Lily would have been able to take the man down on her own, so at least one of the other men had to have been involved. There is very little possibility that Fritz's version was true. Lily's version that her nephews and boyfriend had committed the murders could be possible, but even Detective Havenkar didn't feel the younger boy Brian or Eric had any idea what was really happening in that house. Eric Kansaka had no criminal record. He was not a known drug user, and on investigation, it became clear that he'd been pretty well duped by his girlfriend Lily. He'd believed that Lily worked as an admin clerk for the former aunt's family. He would only apparently find out after his arrest that she'd in fact been a sex worker for many years and that Fritz was likely one of her clients. Despite this, neither Eric nor Brian had attempted to call for help. Neither man even if they had been surprised by the murders, had come forward with information to police, and they had shared in the spoils from the Vormerant's home. As the trial against the five accused started in August 2001, Fritz Vormerant decided to plead guilty to the murder of his parents, but he insisted that the murders had not been committed for financial gain, and that he'd simply found himself on that day in an emotional state after alleged abuse from his father that led to him asking Lily Mandorb for her assistance. The state refused to accept this guilty plea because they had evidence that Fritz had tried to arrange his parents' murders on at least two other occasions in the months before their deaths and he'd most definitely expected to benefit financially because he had offhandedly told others that he was going to be coming into a large amount of money from his inheritance. As a result, a not guilty plea was entered on Fritz's behalf, and the trial proceeded. The other four all entered pleas of not guilty. When Lily Mandorb took the stand in her own defence, she attempted to claim that she'd been assaulted by Detective Werner Havenka and forced to provide a false confession. Under tense cross-examination by the states, the woman broke down and admitted she'd lied and had not been assaulted. What she'd told the magistrate in her confession was the truth, she said. Near the end of August 2001, with all the evidence presented, Judge Jan Kornbrink found all five defendants guilty of all charges against them, which included two counts of murder as well as robbery with aggravating circumstances. The judge said that he had not heard any evidence that could prove that Fritz had been present during the murders, but this did not mean he was not directly responsible for their murders and held the same amount of guilt as the person or persons 
who'd wielded the knife. During sentencing proceedings, Fritz Vormerans took the stand. He reiterated that his actions had been as a result of years of what he saw as emotional abuse from his father, and he decided that his mother was complicit in this abuse, because she'd never stopped the man and had sometimes taken part in the name-calling and mean-spirited talk. He broke down and begged his family and the public to forgive him for what he'd done, as he realized it had been unnecessary, but at the time he hadn't seen any other way out. In his testimony, he claimed that his sister had also been a victim of emotional abuse from his parents, although she wouldn't admit it. He continued to insist that he had never intended to gain financially from his parents' death, and said that even if he had been given some form of inheritance, he would have turned it down. It would take another month before Judge Kornbrunk would announce that he decided on a sentence, and all five perpetrators were once again brought before the court to hear their fate. In his judgment, the judge said he could not accept that there was any emotional breakdown in a moment of weakness that had led to the murders. He believed that Fritz had planned the murders for a long time, and his motives had been entirely selfish. He was certain that Fritz had simply been frustrated by his parents' refusal to give him any more money, and he decided to make it so that they were no longer there to stand between him and their wealth. Fritz Vormerantz, Lindy Mandorb, Ronald Mandorb, and Eric Kansaka were all given the same sentences, three life sentences each. Only Brian Mandorb, due to his age and the judge's belief that he was unduly influenced into participating in the crime, was given a lesser sentence. He was handed down two 25-year sentences for the murders, as well as 10 years for the robbery with aggravating circumstances. He would be required to serve the sentences concurrently. Fritz's sister, when speaking to police, would deny that her parents were in any way emotionally abusive to her and her brother. She admitted that her father had been a strict disciplinarian, but that she had never felt abused by him. Now there is no doubt that Fritz Vollmerans murdered his parents, and the judge had not considered any emotional abuse he may have suffered as mitigating circumstances. And really, neither do I. But... I do think it's important for us to delve down into what may have contributed to Fritz's downward spiral here. Elmarie Myberg of the SAPS's IPU does not feel that Fritz being adopted played any role in the murders he committed, and that is supported by the fact that the vast majority of people who kill their parents are not adopted. They are biologically related to their victims. So let's be clear. Fritz did not commit this crime because he was adopted. The story of emotional abuse, though, which seems unsupported by Fritz's sister, is an interesting one. I've already touched on one aspect of why this may be. Every child raised by the same parents has a different experience of those parents. It's something I've said in other episodes, too, and in other cases of family murder. 
but the adoption aspect brings a new perspective to this. Through the journey of writing and launching my book, I've had the pleasure of meeting and spending time with Sarah Jane McQuala King. Sarah Jane is a beautiful, bubbly, intelligent, caring woman. She was also adopted when she was a baby, under some pretty difficult circumstances, which would only come to light later in her life. Sarah Jane has struggled in her life with substance use issues and mental health challenges. She documents her journey in her two books, Killing Caroline and Mad Bad Love, which I highly recommend. But with all her advocacy, interesting insights, and the important issues she has to tell the world about, I think perhaps one of the most important concepts that Sarah Jane has introduced me to is the trauma of adoption for the adopted child. Sarah Jane has experienced the ideas around adoption that most people buy into, and which I too bought into before I knew better. Despite the immense trauma she experienced, she and many other adoptees are told that they should be grateful, especially if they were adopted into a wealthy family. Adoptees are told that parents that adopted them somehow did them a favor by adopting them, and as a result, the trauma that adoptees experience through being separated from their biological families and everything else related to the entire adoption process is ignored. Adoptees are told that they are not allowed to feel what they do because where they ended up is so much better than where they would have been. Adoptees are often raised believing a completely false narrative, and then when someone decides they are ready, or sometimes completely accidentally, that false reality implodes, and they're told that actually everything they've ever known to be true was a lie. But really, what's the problem? Because they should be grateful, right? Sarah Jane advocates about the various types of trauma and the resulting challenges in the lives of adoptees under the hashtag AdoptionIsTrauma on social media. Her books explain better than I ever could how deeply the trauma of being removed from a biological family and placed in a non-biological one impacts an adoptee in almost every aspect of their lives, often even before they know they're adopted. So how does this relate back to Fritz? Well, really it probably has no direct influence on his crime. It is certainly absolutely no excuse. But he was clearly already struggling with emotional instability, more so perhaps than his sister. And the trauma he would have experienced as an adoptee added onto that very likely meant that his experience of his parents' tough love was never going to be positive. He had already been rejected, at least in his experience of that word, once in his life, as a two-week-old baby. And then, the people who he had been continually told to be grateful for, 
the ones who'd given him a life he could never have had with his biological family, felt that they had no choice but to put up a wall. And that can never be removed from the equation as much as we'd like to try. Does it add up to murder? Absolutely not. But could it be one part of the how the hell does someone do this formula? I think there's no doubt. Kurs and Anna Vulmerantz were just doing what they thought best in difficult circumstances. I fully empathize with families of those living with substance use challenges. It can be draining in physical, emotional, and financial ways that you cannot even imagine. And the desperation will lead them to try anything to help their loved ones. Kurs and Anna had tried everything, and they had gotten to the point where they felt that they had no option but to practice tough love and hope that this would make their son wake up and get back on a healthy path. Sadly, they could not know that the tool that often works for many families of those living with substance use disorders would have tragic consequences for them. But this didn't just happen in a moment. Fritz had been planning this for months. Somehow, in his adult mind, his parents' refusal to support his lifestyle had made him decide that they were expendable. If they weren't going to continue to support him, then they needed to die. And they did. Fritz's sister now lives in a world where she has no family left. Her parents are dead, and her brother is in prison for a very, very long time. She too was adopted. She too lived in her parents' home and experienced their very same parenting style. But something inside her was just slightly different from her brother. And it would save her from becoming a perpetrator, like Fritz. But it couldn't save her from becoming a lifelong victim to his crimes. Jakobus Kurs Vulmerantz, Anna Vulmerantz, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 98, The Murder of Kurs and Anna Vulmerantz. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Lived Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 